chapter 20. John chapter 20. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 18. We might call it Easter Sunday, but I suppose more accurately we should call it Resurrection Sunday. And I know that every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ, but this one is a special remembrance. It is a special celebration. I don't think that we can over-celebrate the most important event in human history. So it's our joy this morning to spend our time considering the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. This is the crux of the Christian faith. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we are the most pitiful of all humanity. Are we not? We are utterly hopeless in this life and we are even worse off in eternity. But, praise God, Jesus is risen. And this changes everything. Since he is risen, we don't celebrate just one hero who gained victory for himself over death. It is much more far-reaching than that. Since Jesus is risen, sin is defeated. Salvation is given. Hope is sure. Life has meaning. And eternity is glorious. Why? Because he is risen. We too will be raised. If we are in Christ. For all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the focus of our study this morning. As we begin, since we're in the Gospel of John, let me do a quick overview of what the Gospel of John covers. Some of you will remember that from a few years ago as we worked through this book. But let me give you just a glimpse real quick of what John has done to give us a glimpse of the life of Jesus Christ. And what the focus ought to be as John records it. This will help us understand what's going on in chapter 20 and what John wants us to see. The life of the Lord Jesus Christ, as John records it, is a mix of tension and hostility with excitement and comfort for God's people. It's not an easy life. He is indeed the man of sorrows, and yet it is a glorious life because of what he accomplished through his life. John's purpose in recording this life of Jesus is to teach us who he is, who he truly is, so that we would believe in him as Savior and Lord. That's important to understand. He's not writing just so that we will believe that Jesus existed, or that he was a good guy, or that he is even just the Savior. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who reigns over all, who is the Lord of all the earth. This is the Lord who gave his life to be the Savior. 
And John's purpose is that we would recognize that and then by faith believe in him so that we receive and find peace with God and eternal life because it can only be found in Christ. Chapters 1 through 12 of the Gospel of John give an overview of Jesus' life. There we walk, as it were, right behind the disciples, looking over their shoulders and watching Jesus minister and live in this world. We see the signs and the miracles that demonstrate his divine power. We hear his teaching, which teaches us what those signs were to mean. And it all points to Jesus as God. And the only question we're left with in chapters 1 through 12 is whether or not we're going to believe in him as God and submit to him. But then when we step into chapters 13 through 19, things take a very dark turn. Now we are in the the, the final night of Jesus' life on earth. In those chapters, uh, chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is having his final supper with the disciples, and he is reminding them again that he is going to die. And the disciples are having a hard time understanding that, having a hard time grasping that. But in those moments, as they are grieved by what Jesus says, he comforts them. And he reminds them that his death is not the end of the story, but that it is part of his sovereign plan to save his people from their sins. He is teaching them that his death is not the end of the story, but it is actually the beginning of a whole new chapter in God's sovereign plan. And then... In chapters 18 and 19, we see his crucifixion. But as it is recorded by the the Gospel of John, and as it is recorded by the other Gospel writers, we find out pretty clearly that nothing in the crucifixion of Jesus happened by accident. Nothing happened because the forces of darkness conquered God's sovereign plan. Every detail happened exactly as it was supposed to, showing us that this sovereign Savior is so sovereign that even the attempts to kill him play right into the sovereign plan of Almighty God. He laid down his life for his sheep. And as he did so, he is able to proclaim victoriously, it is finished. And that brings us to chapters 20 and 21, where the tone now becomes much brighter and more exciting. Because in these chapters, we not only see the resurrection of Christ from the grave, we see why all the previous darkness was necessary, and why it was ultimately good. In these chapters, we come to the greatest part of the greatest news we could ever hear. The resurrection of Jesus Christ that brings salvation, and forgiveness, and restoration, and mission, and purpose all driven by the sovereign, death-defeating power and grace of God Almighty through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, what happened to Jesus' body after he was crucified and buried? What happened? That question has plagued many for a long time. The fact is, Three days after Jesus' body had been buried, it was gone. 
How could his body just go missing from the tomb? Well, many have made all manner of attempts to explain it away. We read about one of them this morning already. Well, say that the disciples came and stole it. Here, we'll pay you money. But if we believe that the Bible is God's revelation of truth, and if we believe it is inerrant and authoritative and trustworthy, and yes, we do believe that, then all other theories are easily exposed as false. Christ is risen from the grave. Where did his body go? It left. Under his own power. And it must be so. For in 1 Corinthians 15, we read clearly, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Your religious experience clearly isn't a religious experience if Christ isn't raised from the dead. Your faith is not real. And all the power of God that you have seen at work in your life, that must have been something else. It must have been something you ate. If Christ is not risen from the dead. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, there is no Christianity at all. It's a bedrock doctrine. To tamper with it or to deny it is to reject Christianity altogether. Our hope is in a risen Savior. Our faith rests on a, on a risen Savior. And though the resurrection of Christ is one of the most denied rejected and even attacked doctrines of Christianity. The Apostle John, who, by the way, saw the empty tomb with his own eyes, who not just saw the empty tomb, but saw the risen Savior with his own eyes, John leaves us with no other reasonable, rational options than to believe that the resurrection really happened. And any other explanation is pure foolishness. What happened to Jesus' body? It was raised from the dead, truly and physically. And that has been confirmed by many witnesses. So John 20 covers the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And verses 1 through 18, which is our text for today, establish the fact of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And then they show us the comfort-giving, joy-producing, faith-building, purpose-driving effect of the resurrection in the lives of God's people. It's a lot of hyphenated terms in that sentence. I wrote it down. Let me give it to you again. Because these, these verses show us the comfort-giving, joy-producing, faith-building and purpose-driving effects of the resurrection of Christ. This isn't just a tidbit of nice knowledge. This is life-changing information. So let's look at this text now. 
find for our souls the comfort and joy and faith and purpose that we are meant to find in the resurrection of our Savior. John chapter 20, follow along as I read. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John, by the way, who wrote the gospel, the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping, in to, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. As we work through these verses, I want us to notice three things. I want us to see, first of all, the confirmation of the resurrection. And then we'll move on and we'll see the comfort and the call of the resurrection. Moving from the fact of the resurrection to what its implications are for us. In verses 1 through 10, we see, first of all, the confirmation of the resurrection. I don't plan to spend a whole lot of time here because the story is pretty straightforward. And since John's focus is on the meaning and the effects of the resurrection... We'll get to that next. But I do want us to notice a few details here at the beginning. I want us to notice, first of all, the initial observation. We see that in verses 1 and 2, which set the stage for the rest of the chapter. 
Verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The other gospel writers tell us there were more women there than just Mary. Right? As we read it in Matthew's account, uh, there was the other Mary as well, who came to the tomb that morning. This text tells us that she came early, that Mary Magdalene came early. I don't know if that means that she came before the others got there, or if they all came early and John is just focusing in on Mary, as he will later. But he is setting us up for what's going to come in verses 11 through 18. And the text tells us that this happened on the first day of the week. Have you ever wondered why we worship on Sunday? Well, because that's when most of the stores are closed. <laughs> no, we worship on Sunday because that is the day Christ was risen from the dead. Amen. That's the day they found the empty tomb. This is the basis for the early church establishing a pattern of gathering for worship on Sunday instead of Saturday, which had been the Jewish Sabbath. That doesn't completely negate the Sabbath principle, but it does bring a little bit of focus to it because Sunday is a day that is better known as what? The Lord's Day. And so it should be. Now, after Mary finds the stone rolled away from the tomb, we read in verse 2 that she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John, and she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have laid him. So there it is. An open and empty tomb. A concerned group of disciples. So we'll look at that verse more closely in a few moments. But for now, these two verses set the stage for several other observations that prove and help us understand the reality of the resurrection of Christ. So I want us to notice next that the first witness of all of this was a woman. Now, that might not mean much to us in our world today, but you need to understand in that culture, in that day, a woman's testimony on its own carried no authority. Not saying it was right, just saying that's the way it was. If John or if any of the other disciples were making up a story about the resurrection, starting it with the testimony of a woman is a pretty bad place for them to start in that culture. Next thing I want us to notice in verse 1 is that anyone who came to the tomb that morning would have seen the stone rolled away from the entrance of the tomb. And it also appears pretty clear that none of the disciples or the followers of Jesus knew about it. They're bewildered that the stone had been moved. So, who moved it? Well, it's obvious. Grave, rob grave robbers moved it. Really? Because I'm pretty sure they would have put it back. But nobody put this stone back. And I doubt one man could have moved a stone this size. Something unusual is clearly going on here. And what's more... It appears that none of the disciples had any expectation that there would be a resurrection. You say, well, Jesus had told them there would be. Yeah, he had. But they didn't get it yet. Remember, the pieces still haven't come together. Look at how they respond 
to the news of an open tomb in verses 2 through 4. Mary ran. She tells Peter and, and John that they've taken the body. All right, so clearly Jesus hasn't done anything himself. Somebody has stolen the body and moved it. So Peter and John, they go, they run ahead to the tomb. There's, there's a sense of surprise here, even a panic of great urgency as they rush to the tomb to see what Mary was talking about. Is there a glimpse of hope here? I think there might be a little glimmer of hope that this, this is unusual. Maybe something good has happened, but they don't seem to be thinking yet in terms of resurrection. They don't seem to be automatically assuming that, except maybe John. Maybe John, as we'll see in a little bit. See, there had been a sense of finality when they took Jesus off the cross. When they wrapped him in the cloths, when they covered him in the spices and they buried him in the tomb. There was a sense of finality as they wept and as there were guards set outside of the tomb. And so the expectations were not so much focused on a resurrection, not yet. Notice next the clothes that were left in the tomb. We read in verses 5 through 7 that as they stooped and looked in, they saw the, the linen cloths that were lying there and the face cloth that had been at Jesus' head. And eyewitness details are given here. Right? The cloths were there just as they had been just where they had left them. The face cloth had been removed and folded neatly and placed somewhere else. Again, grave robbers don't do that. They take the goods and go. Something unusual is going on here. And then notice in verses 8 through 10, the response when they found out the body was missing. John goes in, he sees, and it says that he believed. That's why I think maybe John is getting more of this than the rest of them were. But to this point, they didn't understand the scripture that Jesus would rise from the dead. And then they go back to their homes. Okay. One disciple, John, appears to have believed at least to some degree and at least quietly or hesitantly. The others didn't seem to get it yet. They weren't putting the pieces together in their minds. They all go back to their homes. No one goes out looking for him. They certainly don't start asking the authorities about where he might be. No one went out telling others. They assumed that his body had been stolen or moved. And now they, it seems, regroup to figure out what we're going to do next. All right, how are we going to handle this? Now, I mention all of these details that are recorded by John. Because John was there. John witnessed the events personally. <clears throat> And John's details here help us to understand that this really happened. This idea, this detail that he ran side by side with Peter, and then he outran Peter, and he stooped down and looked, but didn't go in, and then Peter got there and he did go in, and then they see all these details laid out, tells us John is telling us what he remembers. He's not making this up. 
And he's even showing us in these details that no one would have thought this up this way. Right? If this was a made-up story, the details wouldn't have looked like this. So this is a perfect time for us to say, you can't make this stuff up. You have to believe it. Now I want us to spend the rest of our time now, look, having looked at all those details, I want us to look at the comfort and the call of the resurrection. The practical implications that we see, that we receive in the established fact that Jesus is risen from the dead and how that gives us encouragement and joy and hope and faith and purpose in this world. So let's look now at the comfort of the resurrection. As we get into verse 11 here, the focus zooms in mainly on Mary Magdalene and how this experience led her from despair to delight and comfort and faith. And I think in a lot of ways, Mary is like us and we are like Mary. The way that she processed what she saw is a lot like the way many of us might think today. And the work that Jesus did in Mary's heart is the work that God wants to do in your heart today. So, as we consider the comfort of the resurrection, let's notice, first of all, the concern that Mary displayed. The concern. For this, we go back to verse 1. And we find Mary returning to the tomb very early in the morning while it is still dark. She's going there with the other women to put the spices on Jesus' body. His burial on Friday had been very quick. They had to get it put away before the, the uh, Sabbath day. So in haste, they bury him. And now Mary seems to be returning the day after the Sabbath to do this properly. Mary was concerned for Jesus to make sure that his body was properly cared for. The other Gospels also tell us that Mary was concerned about the stone, wondering who was going to move it so she could get in. Both of those concerns are natural, common, and good. But Mary is soon going to find out that she did not need to worry about either of those concerns. So Mary was moved by a good concern, by good intentions, right? Many of us today are motivated and moved by good concerns and good intentions. But we understand, don't we, that good intentions alone are not enough to lead us to eternal life, right? Mary had good concerns and good intentions, but that, as we are going to see in just a moment, actually blinded her eyes to the reality that was right in front of her. And they led her to a wrong conclusion when she gets to the tomb. So, that's the concern that Mary displayed. Let's consider the conclusion that Mary reached when she arrived at the tomb. Verse 2 says, She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Is that a natural conclusion to reach? Sure it is. Is it the right conclusion? No, it's not. 
She had not actually apparently looked into the tomb yet at this point, at least as John records it. We don't see her look into the tomb until verse 11. But even if she had, she still comes to a hasty conclusion without all of the facts, without all of the information, and she is already sharing that conclusion with everyone else. And her faulty conclusion is going to be the source of her blindness later in the chapter when she speaks to Jesus without even recognizing who he is. How quickly wrong news hits the streets, right? <laughs> it happens in the media. It happens in our own experience. Half-truths are proclaimed and accepted as whole truths, and they are embraced and lived by in error. And that error blinds men to the truth that is made plain before them. That is why almost right doctrine is so dangerous. And as for Mary, her faulty conclusion creates a faulty presupposition that becomes her theme throughout the chapter. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. She will repeat that theme again in verse 13 and again in verse 15. And this faulty conclusion blinds her to the truth that is right in front of her. So in verse 11, we read, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She's still at the tomb. And even though she's already reached her conclusion, maybe she's already come back, she takes a look inside. Perhaps she's longing to see something she missed earlier. Maybe his body is there. We just didn't notice it. Or maybe somebody put it back. Or I don't know what she was looking for. But what does she see when she looks in the tomb? She doesn't see an empty tomb. Verse 12 says, And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, I don't know if these angels were bright. On another occasion when there were angels, they seemed to be bright. Here, I'm not so sure, because I, I can't help but think if they were bright, this would have completely corrected Mary's false assumption at this point. But it just says that they were wearing white and they were sitting in the tomb where Jesus' body had been. It seems a bit out of place, doesn't it? But Mary doesn't even seem to notice that there are two guys just sitting in the tomb. Who does that? Again, her faulty conclusion has blinded her to the reality that's right in front of her face. Jesus' body was gone. And there are two angelic messengers sitting in the tomb. And in verse 13, we read that they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? That's a question none of us ever have to ask when we go to a cemetery, is it? We know why people weep at a cemetery. And yet here, they're asking her, why are you weeping? Almost to maybe imply that the one she loved isn't truly dead. They ask the question. She gives the same answer. They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
She keeps repeating that theme, that faulty conclusion that has caused her so much grief and so much heartache. And then, even worse, in verse 14 we read, after she says that, she turns around and she sees Jesus standing there. She didn't know who it was. And I don't think that she at this moment fully turned around and fully looked into his face. She's going to do that in a moment. I think she's weeping so badly that her vision is even a little bit blurred and her head is down and she turns around and she just sees that somebody is standing there. And it's Jesus. She doesn't know it. And Jesus asks her the same question the angels did. Woman, why are you weeping? And then he goes on, whom are you seeking? Say his name. Tell me who you're looking for. And Mary gave a similar answer that she had already given. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll come take him away. You see, Mary in this moment is not at all preoccupied with hope in a risen Christ. Not yet. She's distracted with a wrong conclusion, with grief over a dead master and the thought that it's all over. You feel that way sometimes? You feel sometimes like your Savior can't possibly be alive, not with the life you're living. Mary's faulty presupposition blinds her to the truth that is right in front. She looks at angels. She even looks at the risen Lord Jesus himself, and it does not move her. She doesn't notice. Is that not so much like the world we live in today? And does that not describe some of you? The truth of God's existence, of God's power and his authority have been made plain to all humanity in creation. But our sinful inclinations, our selfish ideologies and ambitions, our false presuppositions blind us to the reality of God. Man's sinful nature is plain for all to see. But the evil one has blinded our eyes. Salvation has been revealed in the word of God through Jesus Christ. Yet we continue to try to make our own way to redefine morality so it lines up with our own depravity. And to try to make our way and our best effort by our own strength and by our own wisdom to get somewhere with our lives. And we wonder why it never seems to work. And we form presuppositions like, well, a good God would never do this. So, or science says this. Therefore, our eyes are so blinded and our minds are so darkened by our sinful natures and by satanic delusions that we are completely unable to recognize the beauty of the truth that God has revealed to us. We need to understand this morning that unbelief is irrational. I know that the world is going to tell you exactly the opposite. You're the irrational ones. Yeah, what a common thing for irrational ones to say. <laughs> 
what it is. It's irrational. It is blind to the truth that God has made plain. Read Psalm 19. Read Romans 1. And you see that plainly stated. See, our problem is not lack of information. Our problem is unbelief. And we desperately need someone to break through the blindness, to break our hardened hearts, and to make us see the truth. And that's exactly what Mary needed, too. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And that brings us to notice now, thirdly, the Christ that Mary encountered. Look at this beautiful moment in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, one word, one word. Just imagine the expression. I, I imagine on Jesus' face there was some sort of smile, a smile that communicated tenderness, a smile that communicated possibly even a little bit of laughter that she was so blind standing right in front of him. I mean, you can imagine this, right? One word. And with that, Mary turns around. She sees him. She cries out to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. With one word, the mention of her name, it's as if the scales fall off. And those tears of grief turn into tears of joy. Jesus spoke her name and sovereignly opened her eyes and focused her mind on him. It reminds me of that tender truth we see back in John chapter 10. That Jesus knows all of his sheep by name and that they know his voice and they respond. And Mary responds here in Aramaic. Why does it matter what language she responded in? Because it tells us that she responded in her heart language. This wasn't an academic response. This wasn't a formal response. This was, this was a response of love, of relief, of overflowing joy beyond expression. And she is now so overwhelmed with joy that all she can do is respond with one word. She doesn't say Jesus. She says Rabboni, teacher. Why? Because it is a title that is filled with deep appreciation and exalted joy. This was the one who had led her to faith. And she loved him deeply. And this is such a vivid picture of how the Lord Jesus Christ reaches his people in every generation, is it not? Even today, in saving us and leading us, Jesus still knows all of his people by name. No, he doesn't speak to us audibly. He doesn't speak to us in a fantastical or extra-biblical way. But he does speak to his people through his word by which his Holy Spirit leads us to recognize him, to believe in him, to love him, to follow him. And so we see this Jesus cares about his people. 
He cares about the struggles and the fears and the griefs of his people. As he does right here with Mary. And what's more, this Jesus comforts his people. Asking all of us, as it were, why are you weeping? Why are you crying? Do you not know that the very thing that is causing you grief in this moment has already been taken care of in Christ? The things that had preoccupied and grieved Mary had already been fixed. And so this Jesus not only cares about his people and comforts his people, but he calls his people to see that all things are fulfilled in him already. We know more. Mary's concerns had already been fixed before she even got to the tomb. He is alive. He has conquered death. And he has given his people eternal life. What's left to do but believe? What is left to do but receive this gift that he has given to us? This is our hope. A hope that is for every day. A comfort that cannot be surpassed. My friends, today, have you encountered the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you seen him as the Savior? Have you submitted to him as your Lord? Are you following Jesus Christ? That brings us now to verses 17 and 18, where we see finally the call of the resurrection. We've seen the resurrection confirmed. We've seen the comfort that it brings. And now we see the call on the believer's life. Mary's recognition of Jesus and her joy in seeing his face is not the end of the story. This is not where the closing credits start strolling across the screen and then they just live happily ever after. There is more to this. Jesus has something for her to do. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now this is a tricky verse. But essentially it is indicating to us that Mary, when she sees and recognizes Jesus, falls down at his feet and grabs onto him and wouldn't let go. Another reasonable response. She had lost him once. She wasn't going to lose him again. It's as if Jesus is saying, I know. Don't worry. You won't. But he tells her to let go. He tells her to let go for two reasons. I have places to go. You have things to do. Yes, he was going to ascend back to the Father, but not yet. And even when he did, he was not going to leave his people alone. But he also has a mission for his people to complete. And here, that mission was for Mary to go and to announce the resurrection of Christ to all the disciples. He calls her to go and to deliver the great news. And in a similar way, there is a commission that Jesus has given to everyone who has encountered him and seen this risen Lord. That commission is this, discover the truth and deliver the news. The Lord Jesus Christ breaks through our blindness. He reveals saving truth to us. 
He calls us to believe and to follow Him. And then He sends us to declare that message of Christ to others. That's why we spent time this morning reading Matthew's account of this, which closes the story with the Great Commission. And so in verse 18, we read, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. What were they going to think about that? I don't think they're going to believe her right away. Are they? We're told they don't. But she delivers the news. And she recounts the things that Jesus had said to her. She did it. She went. She proclaimed the news. She is the first witness of Christ's resurrection. And here we come full circle back to where we started in verses (laughs) 1 and 2. There she had been the first to announce her hasty conclusion, her faulty conclusion of grief to all the disciples. But then Jesus broke through her blindness and he showed her the truth. He changed her. He changed her heart. He changed her mind. And he gave her true and unspeakable joy on the basis of his resurrection from the grave. He is alive and that changes everything. And then Mary goes out and proclaims. But again, this time, a message of truth and joy that she has found in Christ. See, this is the intention for every one of us today, that we would encounter the risen Christ, that we would recognize him as the Son of God, as the risen Lord, as the gracious Savior of all who believe in him, that we would recognize that without him, we are simply sinners who are condemned with no hope, that we would turn from our false worldviews and our sinful pursuits, that we would follow him by faith, and that we would be saved from our sin, and that we would find our joy and our purpose in him alone. Why did Jesus have to die anyway? Well, that's a story that goes all the way back to Genesis Because we were separated from God. Our relationship with him was broken in Adam. Adam, as the representative for all the human race, sinned on our behalf. And by nature, our relationship with God is severed. And that has been the source of every problem mankind has ever seen. What is our fundamental problem? that we are separated from God. And all who are separated from God are not left to exist as if God doesn't exist. All who are separated from God are condemned to an eternity of bearing His wrath because God is a just God. That is our fundamental problem. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died so that the wrath of God would be poured out on himself. So that there would be a way for us to be saved and rescued from that wrath. And so, with all of this in mind, we must examine our own hearts with humility and honesty. Where do you stand with God?
Are you in Adam? Still condemned to bear the weight of your sin? Infinite sin? Under infinite wrath? For infinite time? Or are you in Christ? Who has infinitely borne that penalty for you? So that you can be made right with God. Have you encountered Jesus? Have you seen him in the scriptures? Have you heard from him this morning? By God's grace, yes, you have. And so now the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Do you believe what you've heard about him? Do you love him? Do you recognize him for who he is? Do you long to be with him? Christians, take heart this morning. Your Savior lives. And that changes everything. The world is going to tell you you are on the wrong side of history. Take heart, beloved. You are not. You're the only ones who are on the right side. It tells us a little something about what we're supposed to do, aren't it? But it doesn't. That we ought to be proclaiming the right side of history so that others would know our Savior too. If you're among us today, you don't know Christ, you've never come to a point of placing your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, confessing Him as your Lord, my question to you is this, won't you turn away from the emptiness and the grief that this world has to offer you? And yes, no matter how pleasant it is, it is still emptiness and grief. Why? Because it won't last, it won't satisfy, and it won't save. Won't you turn? Won't you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Won't you live your life for Him? Won't you serve Him all your days? Whoever you are, wherever you are today, what will you do with Jesus? And what will He do with you? Because he is alive, and he's in charge, and we answer to him. And for those who are in Christ, that is going to be a glorious day. Let's pray.